Good morning. It's great to see that everyone is having fellowship and enjoying one another's company. It's great to be in the house of the Lord. And I, uh, I compliment you for coming out on a day like today where this seems like quite a storm that continues on. So as we made our way, my wife Suzanne and I made our way in from the car, the first thing we were wondering is, will we know someone here? And I can tell you, Josh, where are you? It was great to see your smiling face come through the door because we had a connection with Josh uh, Boutros. But then as you began to smile and greet us, we felt very welcome here. And then as we entered into worship, uh, our spirits were worshiping with your spirits. And it's great that we have in common our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to realize that some of these same praise songs that we are singing here are being sung around the world, since, such as our, our oldest child, our son, leads worship outside of Madrid, Spain. He'll be doing some of this very same thing today. Or our church uh, on the Upper East Side of New York City, Redeemer Presbyterian, they'll be singing some of these same kinds of songs that you guys and we all are singing here this morning. So thank you for the opportunity to come and be with you here today and to share with you a little bit about what God's been doing in our hearts and in our lives on the other side of the world. <clears throat> in 2004, my wife Susanna and I were turning over the church plant uh, just outside Madrid that we'd been working on for about 30 years to our son in the faith. And at that particular time, uh, as we were in that process of turning over our church plant, the Lord really began to impress upon our hearts the importance of leadership development as an integral part of the church planting process uh, to develop leaders. Uh, so much so that we actually changed our ministry role from that of church planting to uh, developing leaders. At that particular time, our mission had made us regional directors over Western Europe, so we were in touch with other church planners around Western Europe. And one of our colleagues in uh, Western France, a French-speaking uh, guy, he and I decided that we would begin to interview uh, leaders throughout France and, and Spain and ask them, what is it that you guys need in order to be uh, successful leaders in the 21st century in, in that particular context? And as they would talk to us, we took copious notes uh, trying to learn. They said, you know, you've done a pretty good job training us theologically and biblically, but there's some other areas that we really lack, the practical areas, such as how to maintain good relationships in the local church, how to be good managers, how to relate to the people out, uh, outside the church because we're in a hostile environment. And so public relations good decision-making, creative thinking, those kinds of things. And so we began the process of trying to create what we thought was a new leadership program development that would help these leaders. Unbeknown to us on the other side of the world, people like David Cummings uh, in Wycliffe and leaders from OM were also carrying out a very practical leadership course that has been become uh, known as the Leadership Matters course that grew out of the Townsend Institute, Caleb Ministries, Tent Makers, etc. And they had given this course in French-speaking uh, Africa as well as in Latin America and realized that French-speaking leaders as well as Spanish 
leaders, speaking leaders, would also need this kind of training. So they began to ask the Lord to lead them in the direction of someone who could help them uh, move the training that was in English towards French and towards Spanish. Again, I'm in Spain. My colleague who's in leadership development is in France. Word reached us that there would be a leadership matters course in Las Palmas, uh, one of the islands of Spain. And we were invited to go. So we went and on the very first day, I told Joop Streetman, who was the guy I replaced, we wanna be a part of this. Why should we try to reinvent the wheel? If God is already working and moving on the hearts of leaders from around the world about practical, the how-to of leadership, we wanna be a part of this. He said, you need to wait a day or so at least and see what the training is like. So he came back the next day. I was in Yope's coaching group and I said, Yope, this is precisely, almost word for word, what the leaders in Western Europe were telling us that they needed, these kinds of things. So long story short, we went from church planners to senior trainers with the Leadership Matters course to 2015 and I became the CEO of the International Training Alliance because we believe that this kind of training is needed in the church around the world. It's more than that. We have seen and we have experienced people who have taken this training and they said, why didn't I get this training 20 years ago? Or someone else would say, this is what I should have learned in Bible or theological college or in seminary and no one ever told me. People's lives have been turned around. Now, I'm not sure how many of us have heard of the International Training Alliance, uh, but just in case you haven't heard about it, there's a little clip that I've asked Richie to show to us at this time uh, that will explain just a little bit about that. Let's watch the clip. There have now been uh, expatriate or national missionary workers and national workers from 190 different organizations that have taken this training, and the network continues to expand. It's a very unique Alliance, alliance that I believe that God has brought together. And we'll be happy to talk with, with you more about that after the service. Uh, you can go, as you see, to our website, uh, wetrainleaders, www.wetrainleaders.org. It's an organization. Uh, and find out more about our training um, and find out more about what we're doing and what God is doing through this. We have approximately 130 trainers. As a matter of fact, I believe Stuart, your pastor, is one of our LMC trainers. And we have LMC trainers around the world that are senior leaders uh, who give of their time freely volunteering to go and be a part of these uh, leadership trainings that we have for other leaders who are practitioners in ministry, iron sharpening iron to sharpen these leaders. And we believe that God is using this in a mighty way. So we appreciate your prayers about that and uh, your support as well as we continue this very unique ministry that I don't believe any other organization around the world is doing exactly like ITA is doing it. If you have your Bibles and like you to follow along, I'd ask you to turn to uh, John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Um, we could start a little bit earlier uh, in that passage, but I'm going to read just verses 27 and 28. To put it into context, you'll know that Jesus is talking about the time of his departure, uh, his death. And he talks about the fact that if we really want to win or keep our lives, we have to be willing to give our lives away. We have to be willing to lay our lives down for, for the Father, which is precisely what the Lord Jesus Christ is about to do. And 
the verses here, uh, I think, are key in understanding uh, what does it mean to give glory to God. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 27 and 28, Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Three questions. What does it really mean to bring glory to God? Believers say that all the time. Paul said, everything you do and everything you do, give glory to God, bring glory to God. But you really know, what does that mean? You really know what that means very specifically? So that's the first question. What does it mean to give glory to God? The second question is, how do we give glory to God in our lives? We're going to look at Jesus here just briefly. And then the third question, what now? Where do I begin? So those three questions, what does it mean to give glory to God? And how do I give glory or how do we give God uh, glory in our lives? And the third question, where do I begin? The first question, what does it really mean to give God glory? I don't think there's any passage in the entire scripture that describes for us more aptly what it means from God's perspective to give him glory than the passage that we just read. When Jesus was talking about, he was at, at the point of giving his life and he realized all the weight and everything that was involved in that. And he also then turned to the disciples and he said, unless you give your lives, you'll not get your life back. So Jesus did not follow an easy path, but did the Father's will and what was best for others, for all of humanity. He did the Father's will. And therefore, laying before us an example for us to follow. So giving glory to God very simply means humbling oneself to put God and others first. And the supreme example in all of the scriptures is found in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he didn't think it was so important to lay aside his deity to come and take on human flesh, to live a life and to die in your place and my place. The selfish decision is the opposite of that supreme example, to take our lives and just live it for ourselves and not worry about others, not worry about the Father. And the, the interesting thing is that in the most difficult of times, the more challenging, the more painful, is when we have the opportunity really to understand what it means to give glory to God just as Jesus did. On February the 18th, 1952, off of the coast of Massachusetts in the United States, Bernie Weber and three others made the greatest small boat rescue in the history of the United States Coast Guard. The winter storm on the sea that particular night was so severe that it actually cracked the hull of the SS Pendleton, this huge ocean-going vessel. It cracked the underneath part, and there were 32 crew members who were stranded at sea. The Coast Guard officials on watch that night considered any type of a rescue attempt a suicide mission. As a matter of fact, the older, more experienced sailors refused to go out that night. It was such a terrible storm, they said, and all we have is this little rescue boat. Young Bernie Weber's words clinched the hearts of a few, uh, 
young men when he said, as members of the Coast Guard Rescue Squad, we have to go out. That's our duty. That's why we're here. Now, we're not guaranteed that we're going to be able to come back. But that's the very reason we exist. And so we have to go. So despite the ferocious weather that particular night, and against seemingly impossible odds, Bernie Weber and these three young sailors got in this small little boat and took out on the open sea. The storm was so severe that it completely wiped out their navigation system. And the other three sailors said, Bernie, we're going to have to turn back. We're not, how are we going to be able to find them? He said, I don't know, but we're here. We're going to have to keep on. And so they did indeed continue on until they made it to the SS Pendleton. This little rescue boat with a capacity for 12 crowded on 32 men onto that little rescue boat, and they made it safely back to the harbor. This historic act of bravery was documented in a film released in 2016 with the appropriate title, The Finest Hours. Uh, I recommend the film. It's a good one. But for those 32 men and their families, it's true that Bernie Weber's willingness to put his life on the line was truly his finest hour for them. And in the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ did that for you and for me in honoring the Father and doing the Father's will by his willingness to put his life on the line. And that is precisely what Jesus is saying here is to give glory to God. That's what giving glory to God means. It means being willing to put others and to put God first. Question number two. So how do we give glory to God in our lives? The scriptures talks about that a lot and actually gives us several contrasts of people who live their lives who really don't live their lives for others and for God and for his honor and glory. For example, I think of the uh, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 27, 28. When calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you, God says, they will call out to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me. That's the person who takes off on the sea of life by themselves and lives their lives for themselves. And then there's a contrast. There are lots of contrasts in the scriptures, but one that stands out to me is in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. In other words, people uh, who relate all of the things in their lives, both the good things as well as the things that are not so pleasant to God, we give glory to God and he uses those things and redeems those for his honor and glory uh, from the greatest things to the greatest trials. It was um, 1945 in a Japanese internment camp in China when Eric Liddell died. Now, you may remember Eric Liddell from the 1981 British film Chariots of Fire that depicted this Scottish Christian athlete in the 1924 Summer Olympics in Paris when, because he, he was a Christian, he refused to run in the race that he had trained for, the 100-meter race, because the heats were on Sunday. Instead, 
He uh, ran in the uh, 400 meter race during the week and he won the gold medal. And then he also ran in the 200 uh, meter race and he run, won the bronze for, for that particular race. And he had actually not prepared for those, but God blessed his, uh, his dedication. Eric was fast. He was really fast. As a matter of fact, one of the things that uh, I appreciate so much from his own testimony is that he said, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. In other words, he saw his life, his gifts, his talents as to be lived out for God in his honor and glory. Now, Eric was born in, in northern China, the son of missionaries there with the London Missionary Society. And after the events depicted in the film, Eric and his wife Florence and their children also served as missionaries in China during the Japanese invasion of China. By 1941, life in China was becoming so dangerous that the British government advised British nationals to leave. So Florence and the children left for Canada, but Eric stayed behind in China. He remained there crossing Japanese lines and ministering until such a point that he was forced to go in, along with the other missionaries that were there, into a Japanese internment camp in 1945. According to the story that's told, while most of the other missionaries spent their time complaining and saying how unjustly they were being treated and trying to figure a way to get out, Eric busied himself by helping the elderly, by teaching Bible and science classes to the kids. Uh, as a matter of fact, they, they referred to him as Uncle Eric. And he even actually arranged the football game between the prisoners and the soldiers to kind of ease tensions in that particular camp. This past year, Eric's life took on new meaning to me when I came across a little book, a little booklet that he wrote and was published sometime after his death. The title of that's The Disciplines of the Christian Life. And there were three questions that he posed for those who were considering the claims of the gospel on our lives. And these three questions are, are challenging to me. Number one, if I know something to be true, am I prepared to follow it even though it is contrary to what I personally want, to what I have previously said or held to be true? If I know something to be true, am I prepared to follow it even though it's contrary to what I may personally want or what I have previously said or held to be true? The second question was, will I follow it even if it means loss of face, owning that I was wrong? Remember, he was working in China, the whole honor and shame culture, and how impacting that was for those people that he was writing that for. The third question, will I follow it even if it means being laughed at by friend or foe, even if it means personal financial loss or, or some kind of hardship? I think the thing that impacts me most is the fact that not only was he proclaiming this and saying this to Chinese nationals, he was living it out with his own life. In his last letter to his wife, written on the day he died, Lil wrote of suffering from exhaustion. There was so much work to do, even though he was in this concentration camp. And due to his tireless work, his health evidently completely fell apart. He died on 21 February 1945, five months before liberation came 
to that particular camp. And one of the missionaries who endured that time with him wrote of his life. He said, the entire camp, especially its youth, was stunned for days. So great was the vacuum that Eric's death left. And he said, I remember the words that I heard Eric say over and over. It's all about surrender. It's all about complete surrender. Fact of the matter is, whether we're in the world's spotlight, where everyone is looking, or we're in some isolated place where perhaps we think no one in the world knows what's going on, the point is, is to put the Father first and others first. And that's an example of how we give God glory in our lives. That's how we give God glory. The last question, what now? Where do I begin? What about you? I would say we begin here. First of all, if you don't really know Jesus Christ, don't really have a personal relationship with him, all of this talking about giving glory to God with our lives and everything we do probably won't make a whole lot of sense. What Jesus was talking about here in this passage is that he is God's only son intervened in human history to pay an ultimate sacrifice for you and for me and for all of humanity. He gave his life as a substitute for us so that we can have eternal life, so that we can know God and live with him forever. And to receive the benefit of Jesus' death, we have to understand our personal need of him and place our trust in him and allow God to change us from the inside out, beginning in our hearts. There's no better time than to do that than right now, right here today, to begin your journey with Jesus. The truth of the matter is that's precisely why we're here. That's why we're gathered as the church, to honor and glorify him and to say, he is the way, he's the truth and the life. No one comes unto the Father except by him. If you already know Jesus Christ and you understand what he did for you, nothing less than doing everything you do for his honor and glory really makes any sense. Your whole life and everything you do. Someone has said there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who are having difficult times now and those who will have them later. What's your anguish today? Your affliction? your pain. And what am I going to say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this anguish? Remove me from this time of affliction or suffering? Or perhaps that's the very reason I'm here. How will you react to whatever it is that's hurting you? The point of what Jesus is saying here, perhaps your greatest opportunity to give God glory is precisely through your anguish and your times of trials. That famous British author, C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts at us in our sorrows. Don't waste your sorrows. Don't waste those times that you think, what's going on? Why am I here? Why is this going on? Perhaps that is the time when you can most give God 
the honor and glory. This coming October, it will be three years when I stood with my dad and my siblings and my kids next to the bed of my dying mom in the hospital. My 85-year-old godly mother had suffered for several years in and out of hospitals, but this particular time, a severe stroke had left a blood, a blood clot close to her brain. So the surgeon went in to try to clear the blood clot, and when he did, it burst and it filled her entire cerebral cavity with blood. So the discussion with the surgeon went something like this. We could try to go in and clear the blood from her cerebral uh, cavity, but that would not reverse the damage that's already been done by the stroke. And if she could survive this very delicate surgery, she would probably be completely paralyzed for the rest of her life. So if we decided to do nothing, dad would have to sign papers, uh, so hospice papers, so that the, uh, the rest of the staff would know how to treat my, my mom from that point forward. See, my dad uh, and mom accepted the Lord when I was a baby, and they've served the Lord my whole life. Um, and so, yeah, they, they were prepared for this moment. So we gathered around the bed. Um, my brother, who's been a pastor my whole life out in North Carolina, and my sister, who's a missionary in Tokyo, Japan, our son, who's also a uh, a missionary in Spain as well. He happened to be home on furlough. We just gathered around mom's bed. We joined hands and we, we sang a couple of mom's favorite hymns and then we prayed. And then we heard some really tough words from my dad's mouth. He said, you know, your mom and I have been married 68 years now serving the Lord in ministry and all that time we've been preparing people for this very moment. Because the greatest moment of your life is when you reach that moment and you know where you're going. You're going to be promoted to glory. You're, it's going to be a home going. You're going to be with the Lord. And I know exactly what your mom would want me to do in this moment because I'd want her to do the same thing. So I undoubtedly, with a very uh, heavy heart, Dad signed those papers. Now, as an earthly family, we miss Mom every day. You know, all the birthdays and the anniversaries and the holidays. I miss my mom. But as a kingdom family, we were prepared for that moment because God had prepared us to live our lives for that moment, for his honor and glory, realizing that we're going to be able to go to glory because we've lived for him. And the same can be true for you and your family as you relate all of your life and the things and the circumstances of your life to him. Psalm 34, the psalmist said, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Jesus said, now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour. But this is the very reason I came, Father, Bring glory to your name. Don't waste your sorrows. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place. Thank you, Lord, that he put you first and he put others first so that we could be here today with life. Lord, if anyone here today hasn't had the privilege of coming to know him through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, Lord, would you draw them unto yourself today? For children who maybe who do know you but are going through difficult times today, help all of us, Lord, to realize that perhaps it's these very moments when we can give you honor and glory. Help us to do that, Lord. Give us your strength and your grace to bring you honor and glory, not only with our lips, but with our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen. Amen.